This is Porch Tales, a Humanities DC podcast where we hear the stories of those who shape the history and culture of our nation's capital. Warning, the following program contains brief profanity and offensive historical language. Listener discretion is advised. Humanities DC presents Porch Tales, The Disappearing of Sister Coco with Professor D. Boos. I heard a knock at my door and I had, we had always been trained not to just go stand in front of the door and open it, but to see if you can determine who it was having a, what do you call it, peephole. Um, my habit was to uh, jingle the chain on the door, wait a while in case something was coming through the door, it wouldn't come through me too, and then look through the peephole. And when I did, <laughs> oh my God, my knees got very weak. There were about a dozen white men at my door with guns, rifles, uh, gas masks. I mean, the most horrifying sight I'd ever seen in my door. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Professor D. Boost, alongside DJ Influence. That was the voice of Sister Coco describing a 1969 experience with the FBI that we'll soon hear about. But first, let's recap. In the last episode, we followed as Sister Coco shared her trajectory from anti-poverty organizer and civil rights demonstrator to core aide to Stokely Carmichael and volunteer for the Black Panther Party. In this episode, we'll listen as Sister Coco traverses the tumultuous years of 1967 to 1969. Her deepening political commitments would result in suspicious characters in her orbit and lead her into dangerous streets at the height of American riots and rebellions in the 1960s. Stay tuned for more. July was bringing America a wave of urban riots never before seen. The desperate cry of the poor of all races was demanding the nation's attention. No thoughtful person could deny that the immediate need for improved housing, health, education, employment opportunity, and hope for the future must receive affluent America's highest priority. The ghetto explosions gave new emphasis to administration efforts to expand its programs to meet those needs. The harsh reality was thrust on the Congress and the majority of the people of the extreme necessity to better the life of America's poor. No one believed that centuries-old inequities could be cured instantly. However, new and massive social rebuilding was becoming imperative. Of the 70 major riots to strike America during this troubled summer, the worst of the year and the nation's history would hit Michigan's largest city. By 1967, Black Americans won important legislative victories with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, 
These laws were designed to address some of the most glaring issues of anti-Black racism and discrimination by reasserting Black citizenship and rights. But with the successes born of the movement also came racist backlash to desegregation in places around the country. Moreover, there was the ongoing reality that long-running systems of racism and segregation had trapped entire black communities in desperate poverty. And simply put, neither the civil rights legislation nor the president's new war on poverty was sufficient to address this issue. As a result, discontent swirled in black communities among masses of people still looking for genuine improvement in their lives. Miss Coco, I want to take you back to 1967, right? I know, yes, this is this is quite a year. And so in 1967, you're working in the DC SNCC office, but you're mostly working with Carmichael at this time is that right correct okay and around this time I know that H. Rap Brown is going to become the chair of SNCC correct so we have these things kind of as in the that are context but also important context is Detroit Chicago and Newark all of which were cities who had rebellions in 1967 why do you think those cities went up in rebellion? Racial repression, primarily. But um, I guess if I, I just really stop and think about a, a people's response to intense repression at a time when change is happening all over the place and there are pockets of deep poverty and repression that it's an inevitability. Law and order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. Individuals do not create rebellions, conditioned to do it. Until they begin to address themselves to those conditions, rebellions will continue and they will escalate. We learn well from America. Violence is a part of American culture and black folks are a part of America. So therefore, if we accept any of your culture at this point, it will be your violent nature. Each time a black church is bombed or burnt, that is violence in our streets. Each time a black body is found in the swamps of Mississippi and Alabama, that is violence in our land. Each time black right workers cannot be protected by the government, that is anarchy. Each time a police officer shoots and kills a black teenager, that is urban crime. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has 
fail to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met, and it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Those were the voices of President Lyndon Johnson, H. Rap Brown of SNCC, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., all speaking in 1967. Leaders like Dr. King spoke with urgency as violence flared in major cities. Many Black Americans were signaling frustration with their ongoing toil, poverty, and suffering, despite years of civil rights activism. Okay, we get the lunch counter. Can we pay for our meal? Do we? Uh, you know, it, it's like the next level. And um, and then at one point, to keep saying, "Please, may I?" was a point where we you make some demands and let them deal with your demands. You know, stand up. And, and, and Washington, D.C. was not immune to the unrest. Riots sparked by racial incidents periodically jolted the city in the decade. However, the district's worst violence occurred in the aftermath of the shocking assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4, 1968. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony in Memphis. Within an hour, Dr. King was dead. That happened at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll never forget, someone rushed into the SNCC office and lay prostrate um, down on the floor and said, they just killed Dr. King. And we all just went like zombies, looking at each other because we were the ones hunky hunky, you know, Dr. King wasn't that person. My God. And it, it was like everybody got filled the same way. We just went outside and the streets were filling. Streets were filling and people were coming down 14th Street towards U Street. You could see the, the, the crowd building from Fairmont Street, Euclid Street, coming down Florida Avenue, passing Florida Avenue, coming down to U Street. And then you could see when you got to U Street, them coming down from, from, from upper 16th Street, coming down towards the 14th Street area and the vice versa from the other side. I mean, you just couldn't believe it. Dr. King, and then it started. People's anger and frustration just led them to do all kinds of things. And the first thing you would hear is glass breaking. Then you would hear horns, um, 
people being a long time on their horns because people were filling the streets. People couldn't drive. This is 14th and U. Um, spilling down towards 16th Street on U and in all directions. And it, 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 it just started and kept on going. There had been few weeks like it in American history. A president had stepped out of the political arena in an election year. Then came the hope and elation over the promise of a new peace offensive. And now, just as suddenly, a great Negro leader was dead. And there was sorrow and despair over the burning and looting in the streets. The assassination of Dr. King triggered days of looting, arson, fighting, and property damage on the streets of D.C. Severe violence not suppressed until the mayor and President Johnson called in thousands of federal soldiers, National Guard troops, and police. In the aftermath of the rebellion, many accused Stokely Carmichael of stoking the violence in Washington. Sister Coco, who was with Carmichael on the first night of the destruction, offers these memories. So it was a lot to wrap your head around all of a sudden. What's going to happen? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And then the bang, 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 windows started smashing and people were in the streets. So then we realized we had to get seniors off the street and young people to get them to their destination safely. So that was something we had to turn our attention to. And I spent a lot of time doing it. I live as far northeast as they call it. I don't know if I went to go home and to organize in my area, or if I went there at the end of the day. But there was a, a high ice cream store. And I recall where we worked with it where the UPO office was right across the street from this high store. And this little boy comes out with two gallons of milk, glass containers, mind you. And when he looked at us, as if to say, oh, oh, I shouldn't have done that, he put both hands behind his back to kind of conceal it, and they crashed and broke. And then I went, oh my God, is he hurt all this gallon bottles? That was vivid. I mean, it was funny. On the one hand, he thought he was concealing what he was doing, but it was very dangerous on the other hand. And we, we gave him, a, let, lent him a hand. But um, it was everywhere, because that was far northeast D.C. that bordered Maryland, Prince George's County. So it was, all, it was as these kids say, it was on and popping. This is Sister Coco in conversation with friend, Miss Vera Hope Walston. People who had no idea why their world was coming to an end, that's what it seemed like. Fires and people screaming and store windows being bashed in and, and just complete chaos. Okay, so let, let, let me pick, pick up. Uh, okay, so I, I, I went home, and the next day, uh, my parents told told uh, my sister and I not to go out. They were teaching at, at Raymond Elementary, both of them. I don't know why they had to go to school that Friday. 
but uh, I went straight down to the quad. At Howard? Yeah, because Stokely was speaking. He was speaking. So I remember taking the, taking the bus down there to hear him speak. And when he got through speaking, he took off down 7th Street. I went over to, to the new school. And folks were, you know, running up and down the street and tearing up stuff was burning and and everything. So I went over to the uh, to the new school and I was there watching everything that was going on. And I walked from the new school home. Wow! Can you imagine? I sure can. I walked 14th from 14th and W to 14th and to 14th in Colorado. I walked home that day. Yep. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she opened the eyes for every black man in this country. When white America got rid of Marcus Garvey, she did it and she said he was an extremist. He was crazy. When they got rid of Brother Malcolm X, they said he was preaching hate. He deserved what he got. But when they got rid of Brother Martin Luther King, they had absolutely no reason to do so. He was the one man in our race who was trying to teach our people to have love, compassion, and mercy for what white people had done. When white America killed Dr. King last night, she declared war on us. There will be no crying, there will be no funerals. The rebellions that have been occurring around the cities of this country is just light stuff to what is about to happen. We have to retaliate for the death of our leaders. The execution of those Deaths will not be in the courtrooms. They're going to be in the streets of the United States of America. When Madam America killed Dr. King last night, she made a whole lot easier for a whole lot of black people today. There no longer needs to be intellectual discussions. Black people know that they have to get guns. White America will live to cry that she killed Dr. King last night. It would have been better if she had killed Rat Brown and or Stokely Carmichael. But when she killed Dr. King, she lost. By Friday evening, the first of over 11,000 regular Army and National Guard troops that would occupy the capital city until mid-month had taken up positions in and around the riot area. My husband at the time was stationed at Fort Eustace, Virginia, which is uh, over 100 miles up to down 95 and up 60, 64th, and uh, his troop was on alert to come into Newport News, I mean into D.C., and uh, he called me and said, please get off the street, they got soldiers going, I'm on uh, standby to come, please get off the street, they have orders to shoot. He was so concerned about me. But, but you know what I did? That week of April 4th this year, the 50th anniversary, I listened to all those documentaries. I mean, day and night, I listened to them. And this is what Walter Washington said. He said that they wanted him to order, shoot, to kill. Yeah, of course they did. And he refused, and he refused. What did you have in mind doing when you left home, went out in the street? I had in mind going up Max's on 14th Street to go get my sweater shirt out. You had a sweatshirt up there? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. A new one? Brand new. What do you mean? You had bought it and hadn't picked it up or what? No, it was in the layaway. I had put $15 down on it and I owed 10 
This way you got it uh, without paying the ten? Well, I didn't exactly get it. I got something else in place of it. So, you don't think the death of Martin Luther King had anything to do with the rioting? Some of them, they did it because of Martin Luther King, and some of them didn't. Some of them did it because they just needed clothes for Easter, and they didn't have money to get it. In those dangerous days of rebellion, Sister Coco dared to stay on the streets and even engaged in high-level political conversations on behalf of Stokely Carmichael. So, uh, another time, I don't know what, what oh, Stokely told you to, to go down to the district building and meet Walter Washington. So you took me with you, don't you remember that? No. He was supposed to have gone, but he was out of town or something. And so you went and took me. Keep going. And so we were in a uh, mayor Washington's office. Okay, so we, we, we left insurrection. Uh, his office. I don't know what, some kind of way we got with Salih. Yeah, some I remember the Salih, Salih thing. Somewhere. And we got caught out after curfew. See, I, this is doing martial law. Curfew was was uh, four four o'clock or four thirty or something like that, and so we were caught out. We were coming around Thomas Circle, and they had the uh, this is the U.S. Army, not the National Guard. Right, the U.S. Army. Okay, they stopped the car. Salih was driving a brown Mercedes, and he told us to be quiet. I'm in the back seat. Coco, Coco, shotgun. Salih driving. All right. Now that's Stokely Carmichael was expelled from SNCC in the summer of 1968, and around the same time, the SNCC D.C. office permanently closed. The changes did not stop Sister Coco's organizing. Instead, she continued to support Carmichael in a range of activities, including his work in the creation of an association of Black political leaders in Washington called the Black United Front, and an ongoing support of the Black Panther Party, such as in the campaign to free Huey Newton. However, Sister Coco's close involvement with Carmichael 
and increasingly militant black activism put her in the surveillance scope of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And in 1969, she experienced a harrowing encounter with a suspected agent provocateur, followed by a dramatic arrest. So we were in the the late 60s turn into the the early 70s. Yes, yes. Um, And I want to ask you about um, some some of this hard stuff. Um, All right, so... So to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing publicly, um, share, share how you encountered George. Um, another um, would-be revolutionary who came to the SNCC office and put himself in the milieu of the supporters of the movement. Um, he came there supposedly from New Haven, Connecticut, and he wanted to be helpful, but he was always extra, always more, always over. He wanted to, um, and every time he did something that was a little over, and we'd call him on it, he said, but I gotta protect the brother, meaning Kwame, well, Stokely. I gotta protect the brother, got to make sure the brother's okay. He wanted to carry guns. We didn't carry guns. Um, So by that time, I was pretty much the person in the office that took care of almost all of Stokely's affairs. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, an easy position because some people resented me for it. Other people wanted me to do more for them than for just one person. So it was, it was difficult at times. But when George came on the scene, he was uh, just a handful, and. He always presented himself as someone who wanted to protect the brother, protect the brother, meaning Kwame. So this one evening he came to my apartment and was just lambasting me for not supporting the brother more. The brother was lonely. He works 24 hours a day. I should be more supportive of the brother. I should do more for him almost like he wanted me to be his woman. You know, he had plenty of that. He didn't need anything extra. <laughs> the women were throwing themselves at him, you know. And um, and I was so fortunate, so fortunate, that he never propositioned me, never gave me any hint that that was part of my job, that that was expected, never. And that's really what gave me the, the, the zeal to do what I could, all that I could, in the ways that I knew it should be done for him. But this guy comes to confront me that what Stokely is doing is a lonely job and it's a forgiving job and I should be more supportive of him. And I'm saying, what are you talking about? And that was his position, that's what he felt. And I think perhaps a lot of people thought maybe I was providing more comfort to Stokely than I was. Uh, I never thought about it. It never occurred to me until he went on that that diatribe with me about I, I you know, I should be much more uh, supportive of him and giving him and doing more for him, kind of thing. I don't get out of my house. I don't need to that. Federal Bureau of Investigation. File marked confidential. Title 
Black Panther Party. Bureau file number 105-1657068. On April 21st, 1969, Blank advised that Coco Hughes is an alias of Dorothy Jean McQueen Hughes, who is the former Washington, D.C. secretary to Stokely Carmichael and who is closely associated with the BPP. So that same night that George comes into your house was the night that the FBI raided your house. Absolutely. So can you tell us about that? Well, after he went through all that he went through, I was trying to wrap my head around what had just happened, uh, a little bit out of it. And um, I heard a knock at my door. And I had, we had always been trained not to just go stand in front of the door and open it, but to see if you can determine who it was having a, what do you call it, peephole. My habit was to uh, jingle the chain on the door, wait a while, in case something was coming through the door, it wouldn't come through me too, and then look through the peephole. And when I did, <laughs> oh my God, my knees got very weak. There were about a dozen white men at my door with guns, rif rifles, uh, gas masks. I mean, the most horrifying sight I'd ever seen in my door. I was on the second floor of this apartment building and they were three or four on the stairs leading up to my floor, three or four on the stairs going up to the next floor and two, three at my door and in full gear, uh, riot gear, camouflage dressing. So I left the door and I went to my window, which I could have gotten out of had I needed to. But when I looked through the, peeped through the side of the shade, there were six or more of them on the, on the landing outside my, my window as well. I went, oh my God, what is this? You know, I just, <laughs> I just went through, what is this? So I said, well, one thing is for sure, they're not going away and I'll go back to the door and unlock it. So I went to the door and I made a noise on the door so they would know someone was inside and that perhaps I was making an attempt to open the door. But I did it from the side in case something was coming through the door, I wouldn't get the wrath of it. And then I did, I opened the door and it was about, oh, I guess about eight or 10 FBI agents in full riot gear with shotguns, revolvers, and they came into my apartment. And I'm saying, excuse me. Now uh, I've gotten myself. <laughs> now I'm saying, excuse me, you know, who are you? Kind of thing. But I just said, excuse me, excuse me. And one stood to the side as the others continued to fan out through my apartment saying, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm so-and-so-and-so of the FBI showing me his ID, telling me who he is and that they had had I noticed that I might be in, in, uh, in not trouble, how did this, in danger. Bureau file number 
six, one, seven, one, page, thirty-two. Blank advised that Hughes departed Washington, D.C. on Piedmont Airlines for Fayetteville, North Carolina on April 21st, 1969 and is to be met by Carver Jean Neblet, also known as Chico Neblet, and both are to participate in a forum at an unknown college in the Fayetteville, North Carolina area. Blank advised the purpose of the program is to emphasize the need for political education in the black community and the implementation of, quote, total liberation of the black people. It didn't occur to me at the time that George was the danger. I just saw it that they needed an excuse to get into my apartment and saying anything is enough. It, I never made the connection until sometimes later. But um, they came in, fanned out, checking. I think they were looking for him, a person, because they checked and they didn't see anybody. And as they were leaving out, some of the last ones who had gone into my closet, I had a walk-in closet, said, uh, so-and-so, sir, whatever his name is, can you come here a minute, please? <laughs> and he came back to my closet and I had several weapons in the closet. Long guns, short guns, ammunition, bandanas, of, with all kinds of ammunition. And they said, uh, ma'am, uh, do these belong to you? I said, no, they don't. Well, to whom do they belong? I said, I really don't know. And they sound like that's not the case, but I don't. I said, I have friends who come through here all the time. And they leave things, they leave luggage, and they get them when they come back through. And they said, uh, uh, ma'am, do you mind if we check the serial numbers? I said, not at all, they're not mine. So they called them in, and while they tried to have small talk with me, nothing came back. So they said, well, ma'am, we're sorry to inconvenience you. So they were leaving out of the door. Most of them had gone. When the reply started coming in, F-14, Rifle, serial number, so-and-so-and-so, stolen from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on this date. Serial number, such-and-such-and-such, F1. I mean, they just started coming in and my eyes got, I stretched, like, what is that? Because they weren't mine. People would come through and they leave stuff till they come back. And I didn't even know which, which was whose. <laughs> and that takes us to the end of today's episode. Tune in next time to hear how Sister Coco navigated legal and personal challenges that accompanied her new life as an uncompromising freedom fighter. This has been a special production for Humanities DC's Porch Tales. I'm guest producer Professor D. Boos alongside DJ Influence. If you enjoyed this show and want to hear more, check out my regular podcast called the Self-Determined Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, history, art, activism. Be about it. Porch Tales is produced by Humanities DC. If you want to share your DC story, check out the link in the show notes and be sure to rate and review us wherever our podcast lives on your favorite podcast player. This season is made possible by funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities.